Cedar Street Baptist Church, I love you very much, and it's a joy of my heart to be with you here this morning. Uh, we uh, are ending a journey and getting ready for another one, as is the Christian life. We're walking through now in our final passage in 1 Timothy in a sermon series we started late this summer that's been entitled, Focusing on the Family of God. Focusing on the Family of God. The, the subheading for the sermon series was Believing, Behaving, and Becoming a True Local Church by God's Design for God's Glory as a Reflection of God's Kingdom. So we've been walking through 1 Timothy now for, I think, 14 or 15 weeks. We're ready to land the plane here as we get to the end of chapter 6. And we've, we've tried to figure out what is a local church? Why are we here? What are we called to do? And are we doing what God has called us to do as believers in Jesus Christ? Well, as we get to the very end here in chapter 6, verses 11 through 21, the title for the message here today is Fight for Your Faith. Fight for Your Faith. And I'm going to be talking about a paradox that a lot of Christians do not understand. It's something that I misunderstood early in my Christian walk, and I desperately want to be clear today because I want you to understand what it is that I myself misunderstood. And that is... Grace and effort. All right, grace, this is how we define grace. Grace is what God does in you, through you, and for you, for what is required of you, but you can't do in your own strength. Let me say that again. Grace is what God does in you, through you, and for you, for what is required of you, but you can't do in your own strength. Grace is a gift that God does for you because you cannot do it for yourself. You're saved by grace through faith, and you're sustained by grace through faith. It's all a gift. And yet, through the Bible, you will see that although grace is something that we cannot earn, grace is something that we have to work out. The Bible says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So that means that although grace is the work of God... All right, Jesus did all the work for you to be saved. The Holy Spirit did the work to draw you unto salvation. You have the responsibility to confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And then you have a responsibility to work that out in blood, sweat, and tears until you go to be with Jesus or He comes back down here. All right, this is not a spectator sport. Christianity is a sport, in where, is, a, is a religion in which we sweat for Jesus because He bled for us. So how do we understand grace as a gift, but yet also one that we need to make an effort to open? I'm going to give you an example I think most of you in this community, in this church, and then in the Metter, Georgia community can understand, because we're a golfing community, many of us. I'm not a very good golfer, but I do love golf. I want you to think about Tiger Woods, and then I want to take him and contrast him with a man that most of you, none of you in this room probably ever met. I'm just going to say Don the UPS man. All right, because I used to, in college, in Statesboro at Georgia Southern, I worked at Hackers Golf Park, and there was a guy that came in just about every day to hit a bucket of golf balls. He was a UPS driver, that's right, Thomas, Don from Statesboro, and uh, I want to contrast these two men, and I want to illustrate how it is that grace is a gift, but we still have to work it out. So let me start with Tiger Woods. If anybody has ever seen Tiger Woods swing a golf club, you would know it is a gift that God has given him from his birth. All right. In addition to the gift that God has given Tiger Woods to have this unbelievable hand-eye coordination and this unbelievable discipline to repeat that golf swing stroke after stroke, at the same time, he's been practicing night and day since he was three years old. 
In fact, if you go on YouTube, you can watch a video of him on the Johnny Carson show as a four-year-old. He was playing in tournaments at four years old. There are a lot of people that are real excited. Their kids are potty trained and living as a functional member of society at four years old. He was winning golf tournaments. He was raised by Earl Woods, who certainly was no stranger to the golf course. And he trained at Stanford University, one of the powerhouse golf programs. And he got into the PGA Tour. And, and of course, we, we learned recently, won his 80th event. So, on the one hand, you have Tiger Woods, who has this amazing gift. I don't care how hard he worked, before he ever was born, God decided to bless him with the ability to hit the golf ball the way he hits it. At the same time, Tiger Woods would stand here and say, since he was four years old, when the sun comes up, he's swinging a club, and when the sun goes down, he's getting ready to swing it again tomorrow. He's been doing it his whole life, practicing, working it out, day after day, month after month, year after year. That's Tiger Woods. Now let's talk about Don, the UPS driver. All right, when I worked at Hackers Golf Park, Don, the UPS driver, decided at age 40 that he wanted to play golf for the very first time. Have you ever met anyone who picked up a golf club for the very first time and sat and watched them trying to hit that golf ball? It is a misery that you welcome them into. Say, I've been here, come and join me, the water's warm. All right, golf will humble you quickly. Well, Don, the UPS driver, decided the whole time I worked at Hackers for the... uh, three years that I was there, Monday through Friday, he'd get off his shift, he'd still come, he'd he'd be brown from top to bottom uh, in the UPS gear, and he hit about 100 golf balls, and he got lessons, and he tried, and he tried, and he tried, and he tried, and I I left uh, Georgia Southern, graduated, and I came back five or six years later, and I looked, and Don was still out there on the driving range, still hitting the golf balls, and did he improve? Yes. Will he ever be Tiger Woods? No. All right, he probably became a bogey golfer, which for him was, is, is proof that God's a, a miracle-working God. All right, but the fact of the matter is, he was not given that gift. So he can work as hard as he wants the rest of his life, and he will not be able to do what Tiger Woods does. So we see that Tiger received a gift. It came from God. But for Tiger to win his 80th event the other day, he also had to practice and work it out. He didn't sit on a lawn chair and rest in the gift that God has given him. He exercised that gift to be the person that God has called for him to be. That's what I want you to think about in terms of your walk with Jesus Christ. You've been given the gift of salvation. If you have faith, it's a gift. You didn't conjure it up with human wisdom. You didn't sit down and intellectually analyze it till you figured it out. The Holy Spirit opened up your eyes and drew you unto him. That's a gift. But it's also a gift that has to be opened and worked out through effort. Faith is something that we don't just sit on the sidelines and let God unfold. We fight for it. And we have to fight for it daily. And if we don't fight for it, we will not be who God intended for us to be. Tiger Woods is one of the greatest golfers that ever's walked on the face of the planet. But you know, there's, in, all over the world, there are men and women who are gifted to play the game of golf, but they never put the time in that Tiger did. And that's why we know Tiger's name, but we don't know theirs. There are many of you that have been given great gifts by Almighty God. But if you don't work out your faith with fear and trembling, if you don't fight for your Christian faith, you will not become more like Jesus. You will be an overgrown child in the pew that never grew into the faith that God called you into. And Paul was very, very keen on that. It was when he's talking with Timothy, he tells Timothy to tell the church at Ephesus, fight for your faith. So what's the big idea? What do I want us to think about as we walk into the very end of 1 Timothy in chapter 6? Here it is. 
Our faith is a gift we receive, but also a virtue we must fight for to grow in our Christian walk. Let me say it again. Our faith is a gift we receive, but also a virtue we must fight for to grow in our Christian walk. So, if you want to know how to fight for your faith, grab your Bible. We're going to fight together. And turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be at the very end, verses 11 through 21, to close out the book. If you don't have a Bible, please grab the Pew Bible in front of you. We'll be on page 1180 in your Pew Bible. And if you would stand at this time, out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and fully sufficient word. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Again, verse 11, working our way down to the end of the passage in verse 21. Hear God's word to us, starting in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let us pray. Father, we love you so much. We acknowledge there's a mystery to our faith. It's a gift you've given us, and yet you call us to work it out and fight for it. Help us, Father. Help me. As we walk through the text here, Father, let your Spirit have His way. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to saturate this sanctuary, to open up our hearts and minds and show us where it is that we can truly fight for our faith. Fight for our faith in our homes and in our jobs and in this church and in the community. Fight to be all that you've called for us to be, that the Spirit of God would work powerfully in us to be more like your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Since the very beginning that we started in chapter 1, we've said this book is all about the gospel. That one message, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? And just real quickly, just going all the way back to chapter 1, we've talked about guarding the gospel against false teaching. Proclaiming the gospel to all four corners of the earth. Remembering the recipients of the gospel. All right, that God desires all to come to a knowledge of the truth. And how do we live out the gospel in church life? We have leadership as elders, deacons, and we grow spiritually through exercising spiritual disciplines and putting our priorities in order. We make gospel-centered commitments as a congregation to take care of each other and treat our church family the way we would treat our blood family, to take care of our widows, to take care of our leaders. 
we understand what we gain when we gain the gospel. We gain a godliness that you can't put a price tag on. We talked about that last week. And now we get to the very end, fighting for gospel growth. Fighting for gospel growth in our life. Doesn't happen automatically. Doesn't happen naturally. We have to fight for it. And that really gets to something that I talked at great length with our prospective members here this morning is when it comes to the Christian walk, there is a putting off and a putting on. All right, our old self and our new self, who we were and who we are. There's, a, there's so many illustrations, I couldn't go through all of them, that the Bible uses to talk about transformation. All right, that's part of our mission statement. Heads, hearts, and hands being transformed through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we're new wine, and God doesn't want to pour it into old wineskins or it'll burst. All right, the Bible says that we were the old man, now we're the new man. The Bible says that we're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And the Bible also tells us that we, we show this symbol of old and new in our baptism. All right? Down with the old man, up with the new. Buried with him in the likeness of our death. Raised to walk in newness of life. Old and new. Old and new. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you ought to be able to point to the old and say, that is who I was, and point to the new and say, this is who I am. There's a lot of people, after they pray the sinner's prayer, they go back to their seat and continue living in the old self. And 10 years and 15 years and 20 years go by and they argue about the same things. They complain about the same things. They love Fox News more than they love the gospel. They're constantly bickering and bickering and bickering. There's just no change in their life because they never took off the old self. They did not fight for their faith. It's the Spirit of God that will make you more like Jesus. But the Bible says that you can do things that quench and grieve the Spirit of God. When you don't go where God is, and you don't do what God does, eventually you won't experience the power that God offers. You'll miss it, and you won't see change in your life. So as we walk through the passage here, I think there's three tangible ways that we can think about fighting for our faith. Something that Paul was very passionate about as he was teaching this to Timothy and something God is very passionate about us knowing as well. So as we walk through the text here and close out this book, I want to give us three ways that we can fight for our faith. So number one, to fight for your faith, you must flee the darkness of sin and pursue the light of Christ. Flee the darkness of sin and pursue the light of Christ. This does not happen by accident. People do not become mature Christians by accident because the whole world around you is dark. And if you just fall into what is natural, you'll stay in darkness and you will not grow in light. You have to actively pursue this in your daily life. Let me read this passage and let me tell you what I mean. It says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What's he talking about when he says flee? He's saying, get away from what I just talked about in the last message, which is the love of money. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. So what do I mean when I say flee the darkness of sin and pursue the light of Christ? Well, we flee the darkness, all right? Again, 
When it says, flee these things, you have to go back and find out what these things are. In the entire last message we had, he said to flee from the love of money. Because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He did not say that money was evil. He said the love of money was evil. However, most of us need to stop and say, do we know if we truly love money or we don't? We talked about that last week. And the way that I said that is this. If Jesus came to your door and said, I want your boat. I want your laptop. All right? I want this. I want that. I want your phone. I want this. What would you have the hardest time prying him prying off your fingers and giving back to him. That's how you know where your heart is. And if you truly have a love for money, you'd have a tough time giving it up to Jesus. All right? And so Paul's telling Timothy, stay away from that. All right? Don't hold on to things to where you grow a devotion to them and you'll do whatever you can to keep them and to maintain them. Get away from materialism because it will paralyze you in your faith. It will absolutely paralyze you in your faith. But here's the thing. We're always running towards something. So if the world's running towards money, if the world's running towards boats and vacation homes and lavish leisure, if the world's running towards that, and Paul says run away from that, you've got to be running towards something else. And that, the thing that we need to be running towards is the light of Christ. And he gives us some tangible things. He says run towards righteousness. That means meditate on the fact that you've been declared righteous before God because of Christ. Run towards godliness. Display the nature of God in your marriage, in your family, in your community. Run towards faith. Grow in your trust and your devotion towards God by getting in His Word and getting in prayer. Run towards love. Sacrificially devote yourselves to other people bigger than yourself. Run towards steadfastness. Be determined to be committed in glorifying God. And then run towards gentleness. Offer others the same grace that God has offered you. Run away from the greed of the love of money and run towards the light of Christ. Putting off, putting on. Putting to death, bringing to life. Going down, coming up. Old and new. Old things passing away, new things are coming. This is what the whole New Testament is teaching. We're new in Christ. And we need to live like that. He says, fight the good fight. Take hold of eternal life. Open the gift of faith and apply it in your life so you can become that of which you've already been declared. In other words, if you're called a Christian, go out and live as a Christian. Go out and live the Christian life. Give life to your faith. Turn towards the light of Christ. Here's the thing about Jesus. There's no, there's no neutral ground. You're either for Him or you're against Him. I cannot tell you how many people I meet that speak about Jesus and they think they're complimenting me when they say, well, I respect Jesus. He was a great moral teacher. Or I'm a Christian. You know, I was baptized in 1960, whatever. And even though I'm not a member of a church, I can have God all I want if I'm sitting here at the pond with the, the fish hook in the water. I mean, me and God, were good. Let me tell you something. You can make God out to be anything you want Him to be if you're not willing to do what God's called you to do. There's a lot of people who are sitting home with their family members in here, in their home right now, and they're telling everybody that wants to hear, they're good. They're not good. Okay? They're not good. Because they're not willing to follow the light. They're not willing to go after Christ. They're willing to just sit and let the world do what the world does. We need to take hold of our faith. Give it life. Turn towards the light. We're either for Him or against Him. There's no neutral ground. You're going to hear one of two things when you die and stand before Him. 
Well done, thy good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you. You're not, you're not going to hear, well, you were a good person. Come here. You can come into my kingdom. You're going to hear one or the other. And he knows who, whom are his. He knows his sheep and he knows the goats. We need to run towards the light and turn away from the dark. And we need to keep doing that every day. If you had a wonderful growth in the Lord on a certain month of your life where you were on fire and you were in the Word and you were serving and you saw God do something mighty, don't rest in that. Don't rest in that. Don't rest on what you did. Continue each day to start with a clean slate and go forward for Jesus. You know, there is a famous question that every youth pastor who's ever served has been asked. I have never even asked Dave if he's been asked this, but I know he has, okay? If you teach teenagers long enough, they'll ask you this question. Mr. Bo, how far is too far with my boyfriend or girlfriend? How far is too far? Am I allowed to hold her hand? Am I allowed to kiss her? Can I cuddle with her on the couch? How far is too far? Can I go into the bedroom, turn off the lights, turn on Dirks Bentley, and think that God's going to give me this overwhelming uh, strength to withhold from going too far? You know how you answer that question? You don't. What you say is, you're not even thinking in the right paradigm. You don't honor God by getting as close to the dark as you can without crossing the line of darkness. You get close to God by turning in the other direction and running towards light. Now maybe most of you who are grown and, and married, all right, and you live in the covenant relationship, obviously the, the gift of sexual intimacy is, is a gift that you can freely enjoy, so that's not a temptation in your life, but I guarantee there's others. Let me name a few. How many of you have old friends that you had before you came to Christ and you know that when you're with them, they're an awful influence in your life, but you can't cut ties with them because you've been friends a long time. You're inching towards the darkness thinking, and here's what a lot of people say, I need to be the light for them. But let me tell you what happens nine times out of ten. When you have a friend or someone close in your life who's not a believer and you spend a lot of time with them, you think you're going to draw them closer to Christ, but they're going to draw you further away from Christ. You don't spend time in darkness. Yes, you need to love them. Yes, you need to witness to them. But you don't spend most of your time with people who will pull you away from light. You head towards light. And you spend time with those who are in light. Again, I'm not saying we don't witness to those who are in darkness. We're called to go out and share the gospel. I'm saying the majority of the time that you spend ought not to be with people who will influence your behavior in darkness instead of light. All right, I got some others. What about watching things on TV or on the internet that you know don't grow your faith? All right, something that, this is stupid, but I'm just going to admit this, okay? So one of the things I used to love prior to being a believer was mafia movies. And you say, well, that's harmless. Especially if it's on TBS, they blurp out all the four-letter words. But guess what? If Jesus walked into my living room, I don't think he would be exactly pleased with me watching and celebrating grown men running around killing each other and celebrating greed and money and murder and death. It doesn't honor God. But yet for years, even as a Christian, I'd say, well, if Goodfellas is on TBS, I can watch it. It's not a matter of I can or if I can't. It's a matter of, is it going to bring me closer to God or isn't it? And if it's not, then I don't need to watch it. It's just not, it's not edifying. I do not turn off a mafia movie and feel closer to Jesus. I don't. It's a waste of time. And the reason that we don't fight for our faith is we waste time in all kinds of pleasures that don't honor the Lord. All right? And I'm going to mention one more. 
There's not a church, I don't think, in our size that hasn't had at least one marriage that's dealt with infidelity. Well, guess what? If you were to find the person who fell into that, they did not willfully choose to wake up and ruin their family and ruin their life in one shot. What happened was they flirted with darkness, and it dragged them in like the current of the ocean. It may have started with flirtation with a neighbor or a coworker. Then it turned into sharing your burdens and your heart and your frustrations with that person and and developing an emotional connection with them. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you realize you're somewhere where you should not be. You know how that happened? You tiptoed to the darkness instead of running to the light. You know, I love Danny Aiken, the president of our seminary. He said this the first day I was at seminary. He made the Billy Graham commitment, and he challenged the men of the seminary to make the same commitment, to never be alone in the room with another woman because it's a perfect equation every time. If you're never alone in the room with another woman, there's a 100% chance that you will not be unfaithful to your wife. And he said, he said, I could never imagine doing that to my wife, but then again, I cannot imagine how capable my sin is of making me do things I don't want to do. You do not run to darkness. You run to light. And so what I want to say is, think about your life right now. It's not a matter of, is this right or wrong? It's a matter of, is God glorified by this or He's not? If it doesn't bring me closer to Christ, then I need to go in the other direction and stop flirting with darkness. Stop playing with fire. It will burn you up. It's not worth it. God does not want you to fight that. He wants you to fight the fight of faith and run towards light and turn away from that and make God the preeminent thing in your life and in your home and in your job and in every aspect of your being. So number one, to fight for your faith, you must flee the darkness of sin and pursue the light of Christ. Number two, to fight for your faith, you must flee the riches of earth and pursue the treasures of heaven. It says in verses uh, 17 through 19, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. A couple things we need to acknowledge about that text. First, all riches come from God. This burns up wealthy people. It burns them up. Because I I do know there are many wealthy people in this church who work awful hard Monday through Friday, and some Monday through Saturday, and some Monday through Sunday. I'm not saying that people who are not wealthy because they haven't worked hard, but I will say this. I said it before. I'll say it again. If it offends you, I'm sorry. I believe this is the word of God. You are wealthy because for the foundations of the earth, God predetermined that he would put you in a situation to be wealthy. He gave you the skills to be able to have the job you have. He gave you the environment of which you are in. You have a prominent job because God decided you would. And you have to be a steward of that. And so the wealthy people don't need to think about how much they can enjoy. They need to be thinking about it judgment. They're going to be judged at how well they stewarded that because they have more on their shoulders than others that don't have. You will be judged according to what you did with the resources that God gave you. So the wealthy need to stop thinking, I earned this because I work harder than Joe Schmo over here. You may work harder from him, than him, but even your work ethic is a gift of God so that no one can boast. You are rich because God decided that you would be rich. What are you going to do with it? Now, on the other side, poverty by itself is not righteous. There's nothing righteous about being poor just for the sake of being poor. So God is not saying that everyone who's wealthy needs to give every penny away they have and live sacrificially to the point where they're miserable. No, that's not what the text says. It says 
God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So for those that have wealth, yes, there's an aspect of that, that God is glorified that you enjoy it. But you enjoy it also in the same sentence, they are to do good and be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. You can never enjoy wealth the way God intends for you to enjoy it if you hoard it up and don't share it to build the kingdom of God. You will never understand the joy that God intends for you until you become a cheerful giver. You won't. Because God didn't design it that way. We need to be able to respect the fact that all riches come from God, to be generous in giving it to others, and to know the joy of giving. I heard this the other day, and I've heard it from two different pastors now who've said this because I listen to a lot of sermons, trust me. Two different pastors from two different denominations said the same thing. Scientists have proven in the last 10 years, they've studied this, that when you love Jesus and you are generous to his kingdom, when you give, it creates the same dopamine effect in your brain that sexual intimacy does. The only two things that can create that dopamine hit in your brain is sex and giving. Giving of your body and then giving of your money. Why did God do that? Because I think he wanted us to partake in his kingdom and have joy in doing it. I mean, have you ever met people who are really generous, the joy they have in giving? If you've never sat and watched Larry Sykes give to somebody, you ought to pull up a chair and watch. That man has got the heart, a heart this building can't hold. And he keeps giving and giving and giving. And you know something? He keeps having joy in his giving. You know, for everyone, Brother Larry, that thinks you're going to run out of money, God keeps giving you more to keep giving. Every time they thought Sykes Brothers would go under because they did jobs that didn't show up on the payroll, they'd come home to find more jobs than they knew what to do with. And the joy to watch God continue to do that, God's saying, get in on this. Know the joy of this. Give to the point where you enjoy it. To know that God is doing a thing that you can't possibly imagine. And to take it a step further... Store up treasures in heaven that you'll get to enjoy forever. All right, so Sunday night, tonight, we, uh, we've been going through the happiness study of Randy Alcorn. I love Randy Alcorn. Uh, he's one of my favorite authors. With every author, you, you don't agree with everything an author says, but I sure do agree with an awful lot that he says. And he wrote this little book years ago. I, I buy copies of it every month or so, and I hand it out. I think there's 10 or 15 of you that I've handed it out to in the last six months. Someone comes to my office, has questions, I'm always handing out that book. I gave three copies of it away in the last two weeks. If you want a copy, I'm going to order some more pretty soon. It's about this big. You can read it in one sitting. Changed my universe. I I read it when I first became a believer. I was struggling with the idea of giving. I was in between jobs. I was was hoarding every penny because I was scared that God wasn't going to provide for me. And God led me to this book, and I read it in one sitting, and I wept over it. The whole thing is about Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Here's what Jesus says. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy where neither thieves break in or steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will also be. All right, so most of us know that passage. Don't store up things in the earth that either moth and rust are going to destroy or someone's going to break into your house and take. Store up heavenly treasures. Well, how do you do that? Well, what Randy Alcorn says is when you give to the kingdom now, God is storing that up for you in eternity. It's like an eternal storage unit. And I don't know how big your storage unit is, but I hope mine's a big one because I'm excited to enjoy those things for eternity. Because when I get there, uh, moth and rust and thieves, they can't get to it. You get to enjoy it forever. So here's what Randy Alcorn says about the treasure principle. He said there's six keys to it. I'm going to tell you what they are. 
He said, God owns everything. I'm just his money manager. We need to get to that mindset. We need to know that what we have is not ours. It's God's. Two, my heart always goes where I put God's money. You want to know where your heart belongs? Look where your checkbook is. Three, heaven, not earth, is my home. And if, if, if there's any note takers, I'll give it to you at the end of the message. I've got to move through this quickly. Number four, I should live not for the dot, but for the line. The dot is where we are right now, but the line is an eternity that goes from here to here. Stop living for here. Live for the line. Five, giving is the only anecdote for materialism. I talked about that last week. And then number six, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. What's the first thing you think about when you get a big tax return or a big pay raise? What can I get now? And I'm standing here before you as a sinner preaching to sinners. I've had the same thoughts. This year I got the best tax return I have ever received. And I enjoyed a good bit of it, probably more than I needed to. So I'm not, here, I'm not sitting here saying, listen, I got this thing all figured out. But I do know this. On the other side, I've had the joy of giving. And, I, and I'm, pr- I'm grateful that God has continued to fill my heart with joy to give. It, it is a joy. It really is to see, first of all, what God can do on this side of heaven, but also to know that it's the best investment you could ever make. We do not know exactly what those treasures are going to look like in the kingdom, but when you give to the kingdom now, you can enjoy them forever. Randy Alcorn says, here's here's what you should think about. If you were on vacation in France and all of a sudden you came into a bunch of money, would you spend all that money decorating your hotel room? No, because you're only going to be there for a short time. You'd send the money back to Georgia so that when you got home, you could enjoy it. Well, eternally speaking, we're in France right now. We ain't home yet. And so we can't enjoy it now. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. But you can send it forward by investing in the kingdom and having a chance to enjoy it for all of eternity. That's the treasure principle. And that's what we need to do, to flee the riches of earth and pursue the treasures of heaven. There's nothing greater than investing in the kingdom and watching God work. So as we, as we draw to a close, third and finally, I want to say real quickly, to fight for your faith, you must flee the lies of falsehood and pursue the truth of the gospel. Verse 20 through 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. To guard the gospel, basically, we don't waste time with babble. Let me just say what that means as we draw to a close. We do need to witness to people. And we do need to engage in conversations. And if you're talking with a non-believer, they are going to say something that is not true because they don't know the truth. But you don't spend all day debating and debating and debating, trying to debate somebody into the kingdom of heaven. Debate will never win somebody to Jesus. All it will do is rally other people around you who believe what you believe and anger the people that don't believe what you believe. You have to live it out in front of somebody before you debate it. You know, and that's my issue with politics. People want to talk about Fox News more than they want to talk about the Scriptures. You won't make any change in your community by trying to rally people and stand up for what is right. You do it by living what is right. You don't stand up for what is right by constantly discussing what is wrong. You stand up for what is right by shining the light of Christ in a dark world that needs to see it. Translation, turn off Fox News and open this book. I can't believe when people come to church, they want to talk more about what's in the news than what's in the good news. I just, I can't believe it. The rest of the world's talking about it. This ought to be the one place where I don't know anybody's political affiliation. 
other than the fact that you're praying for our nation. What I ought to be hearing out of everybody's mouth when they come here is, man, you see what God's doing here? You see the kingdom that God's building here? You see who's coming to faith here? You see what God's doing? I can't wait to see what's going to happen. I can't wait to be with this person in the kingdom. I can't wait to see the treasures that are being stored up. You're a citizen of another kingdom. This ain't your home. It's not. It's not your home. It's a great place to be. It's the greatest nation in the world. I'm grateful that God called me to be an American. I'm grateful for the military that protects my freedom so I can stand behind this pulpit and preach without worried about being killed. But I'm here to proclaim another kingdom. I'm here to proclaim the kingdom of God. We need to stand up for the kingdom of God. Here's the deal. You stand up for the kingdom of God, God will throw America in for free. You stand up for America, you'll get neither one. You stand up by living out the gospel, living in light of Christ, being Jesus to the world, and God will change America. But if you stand up saying, we need to stand up for what is right, we need to watch Fox News eight hours a day and gather around the water cooler and complain and complain and complain, you won't change anything. You need to fight for your faith, not for Washington, D.C. You need to fight for Jesus. Start in your marriages. Fight for your faith. Pray with your spouses. Fight for your children. Pray for their salvation. Fight for the opportunity to share Jesus with people that don't know him. People who are standing on the edge of eternity and they do not know that if they take their final breath, they will not know Jesus and they will not see God for all of eternity. That's what we need to fight for. And if you do that, he'll throw this world in for free. But if you aim for this world, you're going to get neither one. That is what Paul's telling Timothy. And that's what God's telling us. But he does say one final thing at the end. Grace be with you. You know, that's not a throwaway term. That's not a throwaway term because here's the thing about grace. Grace is admitting you can't do this in your own strength. All right, so he says all this, and at the very end he says, grace be with you. It's like Paul telling Timothy, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And by the way, don't forget, you can't do this in your own strength. You need grace. Grace. And you need grace to do this today and then tomorrow and then the next day and the next week and the next month. You need grace every bit as much as you needed the day you got saved to be sustained to honor God until he calls you home. You need grace. There's no better way to close out a letter to say grace be with you. We need grace. So let me sum this up, land the plane. In one sentence, I would say this. In Christ, our greatest battle is already won. So we must learn to fight from victory and not for victory. Say that again. In Christ, our greatest battle is already won, so we must learn to fight from victory and not for victory. Victory in Jesus. We sing it here all the time. The victory's been won. Faith is the victory. We already have the victory won. We need to work it out. But we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Maybe I'll close out with one last illustration. Imagine this. Imagine that God went down to Sanford Stadium in Athens, Georgia. And he told Coach Kirby this. I've already decided the Georgia Bulldogs will be your 2018 national champions. Already decided it. Now go out and make it happen. How do you think that would change the Bulldogs? 
How do you think that would change the way they scheme the game plans? How do you think that would change the aggressiveness in which they'd call plays? And how do you think that would change the way they would see things when they fumbled the football, lost possession, were actually behind in a game? How do you think that would change their mindset? They'd say, you know what? I already know the end. I already know the final score. I'm not worried. I'm just going to keep calling good plays. I'm going to keep moving the ball forward. I'm going to keep scoring touchdowns. I'm going to keep stopping them from scoring touchdowns. And I'm going to keep doing it till the whistle blows. And I know that when the whistle blows, I've already won. It would change everything. Well, we're the Georgia Bulldogs. And God has told us the game's over. It's already been decided. Read the book of Revelation. What we have to do is work it out. We actually have to play the game. We have to fight. Game plan, execute, do what God's called us to do. But we do it from the grace of God, knowing the victory has already been won. We just need to live it out. If you've been declared righteous, live righteous. You've been declared victorious, live victoriously. Fight to be what God has already declared that you are. Now, if you're a Christian, you've already been declared righteous. So God says, let's act like it. If you're not a believer... You're not on the winning team right now. You're fighting a losing battle that you cannot fight, and you need grace. You need to be saved. Jesus lived perfectly the way that you should have lived, earning your right standing before God. Because if you stand before Him, judged by your own merits, and you committed just one sin your whole life, you will not be with Him in the kingdom because He's perfect and He can't be in the presence of sin. But Jesus lived perfectly, earning your righteousness for you. He died sacrificially, taking on your penalty for you. He rose from the dead, making a way from death to life. And he ascended to the Father and sent down his Holy Spirit to indwell you and open your eyes to see the truth. If you believe and confess and give your life to Jesus, you will be born again and you will be saved. And if you don't, you'll have to face God on your own merit and you'll be without God for all of eternity. This is a faith that we need, to, we need to give over to the Lord. And for those that are believers, this is a faith that we need to fight for. Let's pray. Father, this has been a busy week for all of us. I can see the fatigue in the eyes of the people in this room. We're tired and distracted. But your Holy Spirit can overcome all that. So here's what I pray. Father, I pray for every single person in this room when they go home tonight. They would consider what the difference is between the darkness and the light. And Father, that by the strength of your spirit, that we'd fight for the light. That we would not get as close to the edge of darkness as we could. We would run as hard and as fast as we could in the direction of the light of Christ. Father, for those in this room that are are, are dancing in the darkness right now, convict them with your spirit. And for those that want to pursue the light, but they're stuck, remove the barriers, Father. Help them to confess and to put their faith in you. Father, we prayed for revival in this room every night this week, and revival happens through repentance. And so, Father, I pray if there's any barriers in this room right now, that you would remove them, Father, that we would draw close to you and pursue the light of Christ. These things we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.